Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. England attacked by robots. The polka dot sex pot. Poetry's greatest gotcha moment. Down under Hollywood style. All that and more is coming up. I'm Michael Adams. I'm Mick Luby. This is The Wayback Week, and we're about to take a deep dive into stories from the third week of June 1944. Some made history, but a whole lot more deserve to. So it's the third week of June 1944, and the war is going really well for the Allies. If you could sum it up in one cartoon, it's a cartoon from The Telegraph that week, and it's got Hitler sitting in his office with bombs raining down through his window, talking on the phone to Hirohito in Tokyo with bombs raining down through his window. And they're both saying, you're telling me. So the war is, the war has totally swung towards the Allies after D-Day, but it's not over yet, is it? No, it's not. There's, that's the other thing. The, the newspapers are full of casualty lists. This is, this is, these are dark days. These are heavy casualty lists. These are hundreds of planes being destroyed in single raids and thousands of men perishing in da- a day's battle. Mm, shortages of food all over the place being reported. And then there's the secret weapons. So if you're looking at the newspaper headlines from the third week of June 1944 in Australia... It's like you're looking back into some sort of alternate reality, some sort of steampunk universe, because these are their sort of headlines. Fewer robots over England. Robots strike at civilians. Hunt on robots. Raids on robots continue. And what they're talking about are the V1 flying bombs that the Nazis have let loose as vengeance weapons after D-Day. The doodlebugs, the buzz bombs. But back then they were called robots. Pilotless planes raid England was the headline that I was looking at. German flying bomb. And the stories surrounding them are truly terrifying. And they make this kind of farting noise as they fly through the air, hence the term buzz bomb or doodlebug. But the scariest thing is when that noise stops. There's a paragraph here about the Ministry of Home Security issuing a warning to the public that when the engine of a pilotless plane stops and the light at the end of the machine is seen to go out... It may mean an explosion will soon follow, perhaps in 5 to 15 seconds. It's not a lot of time to move, is it? No, and also to, to hear that sound and be that's the warning you get. So they packed a one-tonne warhead. They were 25 feet long. They had these stubby little wings, but they flew at 400 miles an hour. So they would be across the channel in minutes. You didn't have much time to prepare. If you heard one cut out above you... You probably only had time to bend over and kiss your butt goodbye, pretty much. Mm. So those of us living in the future who complain about a buzzing little drone that might be taking photos of us, it kind of pales. This was the week in which they were first unleashed en masse. But the first few that actually reached England didn't do much damage. Some of them crashed. And Lord Sherwell, who was an advisor to Churchill, said, The mountain hath groaned and given forth a mouse. So he was kind of going, actually... These aren't a menace at all, but he kind of soon came to regret those words because in the next uh, sort of six months or so, they 
launched almost 10,000 of these mm. and they killed more than 6,000 people. It was never going to win the Germans the war, but it certainly took a massive toll on British civilians in southeastern England. Mm. And it was the spin coming out of Germany. So you've got the propaganda minister Goebbels, Joseph Goebbels, saying that this was a war-winning weapon and the Allies were trying to say to tamp it down and say it's all it's all talk and australia maybe maybe speaking from a safe distance so an editorial in the age in this week is is putting this one forward has hitler got the goods in his newly launched pilotless planes or is his latest secret weapon a flop Mm. well yeah it was easy to say that in australia wasn't where you Mm. weren't going to be hit by one yeah yeah and they they do concede that obviously if you're going to drop these things where there's a lot of people where it's heavily built up then obviously it will create you know a lot of chaos, but not they're not convinced. But as bad as the V1s were, the sequel, the V2, was worse because it was actually a rocket. These were ballistic missiles that travelled at 3,000 miles an hour. They didn't make any noise at all. They were travelling faster than the speed of sound. You would not know what hit you. There was no doodlebug engine cutting out. You were there one minute and the next... You were a smithereens. Mm. And there was no doubt that these were effective. They killed three, or nearly 3,000 people, as with the V1s. The propaganda that came out of Germany was, you know, German scientists have invented a new and more destructive weapon. It is the V2. It's time for the British people to listen to the words of reason of the Fuhrer. Give up this war. It is one you cannot hope to win. Of course, that wasn't true. Mm. But this is sort of, you know, the... A glimpse of the future in terms mm. of drone warfare and even, you know, rockets used to explore space came out of this technology. You know, there was a thing called Operation Paperclip after the war in which there was a race to snatch up all the Nazi scientists involved with this technology mm. who then were used to uh, for the space race and right. also for the development of nuclear weapons and so on. Not to reinvent the paperclip. Not to reinvent the paperclip. I think the paperclip's pretty pretty gnarly design. Yeah, well, Microsoft had a go at reinventing it. Yeah, little, they did. That little character. <laughs> so annoying. Yeah, now, there's a flop. Is he still around? Uh, what was his name? Clippy. Uh, I think Clippy's long gone. Clippy. Do kids know what paperclips are these days? Mm. You know what? They probably do because they're the way that you get your SIM card out of a phone. Oh, there you go. Very good. So they're probably called SIM card stickers these days. This third week of June was a, was a big week for secret weapons and weapon development. The other one was the upgrade of the flamethrower. The flamethrower had been around for since the World War One, but in this week the U.S. military started using gas gel, which meant you'd be firing a sort of semi-solid, burning projectile, slimy mass, which would then stick to your uh, to the enemy and kill them. Obviously, mm, nothing like a war to inspire these reinventions of something that's already terrible to make it far more terrible. And that's reflected in the headline, Flamethrowers Had a New Horror. Flaming death in jellied form blazed through the Nazi line of pillboxes lining the supposedly impregnable defences of the French coast, literally melting them away. It's quite horrible, isn't it? It is the stuff of nightmares. To be reading this from a safe distance and thinking you, your brother, your father, your whatever, friends, lovers, etc., are heading off to face this would be ah, unimaginable. Amazingly enough, the United States military voluntarily discontinued the use of flamethrowers in 1978. 
on, on humane grounds? No. They actually said it wasn't an effective battlefield weapon because a soldier with a flamethrower canister on his back, etc., is a very easy and prized target for a sniper because if they can hit the hit the canister... And that canister's in amongst the troops. They're killing a lot more people mm. than just that one guy. But there was another angle to it was being the guy carrying the flamethrower, mm. they weren't taken prisoner. Mm. They were executed because it was so horrific what they were doing. Right. So it wasn't probably a great job to have being, oh, I'll put my hand up to be the flamethrower carrier guy when you your chances of surviving a battle were significantly reduced. So this was deemed as just not cricket. But flamethrowers were recently in the news as well, courtesy of another evil genius Is named right? Elon Musk. Elon has his kind of, you know, mechanical slash engineering outfit called The Boring Company. Yes, I've heard about The Boring Company. And they actually do bore yeah. tunnels. Yeah, I was so disappointed, forth. yeah. He actually released a product called The Boring Company, not a flamethrower. Right. And I'm still looking over the fact that Elon Musk isn't a deodorant, Elon perspirant for men. Now I've got to get my head around The Boring Company. And then the not a flamethrower, which is a flamethrower. Mm. 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 It's the flamethrower you have when you're not having a flamethrower. Yeah. You could actually spray yourself with a bit of Elon Musk. Mm, yep. Oh, yeah. Did he make his fortune from the invention of the Musk sticks, or is that not true? Uh, I No, I, I would have thought that was not true. Yeah, okay. I'd go with untrue. Untrue. Mm. So while the US military got rid of flamethrowers, there is actually no federal law in the United States banning flamethrowers. So mm. you're able to make one if you want, I guess. To what end? Like, what is a flamethrower if you're using it for purely innocent reasons? Like hunting. Hunting. Yeah. To just roast your deer rather than have to shoot it, then roast it. Yeah. All in one go. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So Elon, being an evil genius, saw the gap in the market and sold several thousand flamethrowers, which for whatever reason are called not a flamethrower. Mm. Having seen the demonstration videos of these things, there is little doubt that these throw flames. Yeah, they um, made a fortune for him. Sold, sold out. 10, mm. mi- 10 million in revenue. They were 500 bucks a piece. It's just what the Limited edition. It was. Now they're on eBay. If you want to get one, you can write as we speak, the boring company, not a flamethrower, never fired with fire extinguisher, comes mm. in its nice little case with its certificate of ownership and its instruction manual, $711 with uh, two days and 23 hours left. And there's nine bids so far. Mm, never fired. I think Elon should be fired for that You one. think so? Mm. Can he fire himself? Mm. Yeah. I think a lot of his shareholders wanted to fire him into the sun at the moment. <laughs> got, it's the company with the technology to do it. During these dark days of uh, 1944, there was a, a fairly scary figure on the home front by the name of Mrs Myrtle Bannister. Myrtle Bannister is a frightening name. It is a, it's a frightening name, and I certainly found it frightening to read about. Myrtle, Mrs. Bannister to you and, and pretty much everyone I'd say, headed up Global Thinkers Incorporated, a new American morals correcting organization which was out to sponsor a thousand young girls to improve American womanhood. Oh, good. She was a Scottish born. American, okay. came from Nashville, hailed from Nashville, Tennessee. And she said the organisation had, at this point, 550 workers in 10 states and within a year, 
she'd have a thousand workers in 45 states. What were these quote unquote workers doing? These workers were employed to improve womanhood. Oh, and how do you go about that? Mm, I'm glad you asked. Let me that, hang on. Let me guess. Equal pay. Mm, uh, no uh, mention of pay. Career opportunities in education. Mm, no, no, mm, no. Ways to defend themselves against sexist behaviour. Uh, no, not that either. Education. Uh, okay. No. All well, right. education. She'd argue education. Okay. So, what were That's they doing with these with these poor girls? Well, what they were doing was sponsoring these girls to a very high standard. Oh. Quote unquote. Mm. One puff of a cigarette, one sip of alcohol will disqualify them. For good, said so no take Mrs. Backs. Bannister. No takebacks. No, no, no warnings. They will be allowed to gather occasionally for a cup of tea, attend flower shows, do knitting or crocheting work, and sometimes go to an educational movie. Fantastic. What Mrs. Bannister's idea of an educational movie might be boggles the mind. Global Thinkers Incorporated will run spiritual health programs for the girls. There will be no sex, absolutely no sex whatsoever. This is why in 2019, 75 years later, mm. we're not overrun with global thinkers because they didn't have sex. That's right. Well, that yeah. was the fatal flaw in her plan. She clearly didn't really think this through because she's all for womanhood, but she's not for advancing the population. So what was the point? She actually goes on to say... Uh, and I have to say, I'm going to try and say this with a straight face. Could you say it in a Scottish Tennessee accent? That now, is that would way be, beyond me yeah. because it, just saying this straight is hard enough. Says Myrtle, Our boys will be disgusted when they return from the war and find their women folk drunkards and loose livers. Loose livers? Mm, loose oh, livers. as in they, they live loosely. They will live loosely and the boys will be horrified. I imagine that if they're drunkards, they'll also have pretty loose livers. They would have loose livers as in the organs. Yes, I'd say so, but I don't think that's Myrtle's Do concern. you think the boys getting back from the front would be going, oh my God, I can't believe that these women are drunk and mm. have lax morals. I look, think at them, be... look at them staying out late and mm. having a party And with having us. sex with us. It's a free-for-all. Well, Myrtle, well, she was putting her foot down. There was another great line where she said they were looking for initiators. And what was the job of an initiator? She didn't go into what the initiation entailed, but what they wanted was an initiation director who must be under 35 Grace a Grecian robe, have voice training and be the last word in elegance for girls. Grace a Grecian robe? Yeah, I thought you might spot that one, yeah. It sounds like a line from The Sound of Music. <laughs> Grace a Grecian robe. Wow. Grace a Grecian robe. I think mm. if we're looking for a tagline for our podcast, it could mm. be that. In an interesting book titled The Mirror of Antiquity, I got a little bit of a background on Grecian robes. Says Caroline Winterer, American women first became obsessed with Grecian dresses in the late 1790s when reports from Americans in Paris of Parisian women dressed à la grecque began to trickle back. This designation included not just rows, but also hair curled into tiny face-framing ringlets and festooned with ribbons. The style might be topped with a turban and even a feather tucked akimbo like a sail. Both Greek and Turkish in aesthetic, the style was utterly transnational. For all its transatlantic popularity, its origins are obscure. It may have originated in the children's clothing of the 1780s, which, as portraits suggest, moved into a direction of loose robing. I could already, mm, like Myrtle would not approve of this. The thing is, so she wants her tightly moral women to mm. wear loose robes. Mm. It's kind of a bit of a mixed message, isn't it? It's very mixed because it's classical, 
mm. but it's loose. Yeah. Mm. And she's not into this loose living thing. And the ancient Greeks, well, they were quite they quite enjoyed the fleshly pleasures, did they not? Well, that's right. And the, they uh, liked to grape. Yeah, that's right. Well, this and an the, orgy. I think they were kind e- of exactly partial. the loose fitting clothing was was all the rage for that reason. And Marie Antoinette. She, she loved these robes and she popularised the robes. Really? Yep. In fact, it was her sister-in-law in the 18, early 1800s who scandalised America and France. She made the Grecian robe style all her own, basically by wearing it without corsets and it was entirely transparent. Good this Lord. Is, this is the 1800s, 1803. So I don't think Myrtle had thought this through particularly. She wanted her cult of moral women to be getting around in transparent Grecian robes, mm. not smoking, not drinking, not having sex absolutely ever. Yes. What a world. It's but kind of like the Handmaid's Tale. If you picture the Grecian robe in the way that Myrtle was looking at it, you might imagine something like the Columbia Pictures woman, oh. the lady. Or the Statue of Liberty. Or the Statue of Liberty, because these are all the classical looks where mm. you can't really see the figure Right, I think right. that's what I think that's what Myrtle was gunning for. Imagine the job interview though for the initiator. It's like everything seems to check out. You're uh, under thirty-five now. Would you mind just stepping into the dressing room to see if you really do grace a Grecian robe? <laughs> okay, you can't help. Not I, just I, wear one. You have to grace it. I want to just keep saying grace a Grecian <laughs> robe. <laughs> but Myrtle would have been scandalised again in later years because it was not long after this that the lady of Columbia Pictures, everyone knows her, she's holding the torch, she's got the the Mm. long robes, the long flowing robes. She appeared in 1924 and morphed and morphed over the years. By the early 1950s, she had the full plunging neckline. They never updated the Statue of Liberty like that, did they? No, they didn't, no. They didn't get the chisels out for that one. Let's talk about another woman who was a household name in the third week of June 1944, particularly popular with the troops. I'm not really sure how Myrtle would think that the soldiers coming home wanted these prim, proper virgins who didn't smoke or drink in Grecian robes when a 100,000 of these very boys had sent letters requesting a picture of Chili Williams. Now, we've heard of Veronica Lake and Betty mm. Grable, who were big pin-up girls in World War II. Mm. I'd never heard of Chili Williams. She was known as the polka dot girl. Did Chili have a, another name or she was born Chili? Chili did have another name. She was born Marion Sorensen in 1921. Oh, she did the full name so change. So she did the full name change. She was discovered in New York in 1943. So... This photographer saw her frolicking in the surf and he took a bunch of photos of her and then he got the idea of putting her into a polka dot two-piece dance set, which we would now recognise as a bikini. Mm. The bikini hadn't been invented at that point. Not a teeny-weeny. It wasn't teeny-weeny, but Mm. by the standards of the day, it was pretty revealing Mm. and pretty ooh-la-la. It was pretty oomphy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, so these photos went to the boys. So they saw photos of her in the magazines and what have you, and 100,000 of them wrote to her and said, can you send us autographed pictures? And she said, sorry, I can't because it cost me 20 bucks per thousand. That's not including postage, and you multiply that out. You'd have to have spent like at least $2,000 to fulfill their needs, shall we say. Was she really replying personally? No, no. She said to the to the newspapers, "I've right. I've had all these requests, but I can't do it because yeah. it's you know financially prohibitive." 
So the reason that Chili Williams, the polka dot girl, was in the news this week was that she was having a, quote, telegraphic quarrel with Mrs. Mura Moran. Now, Mrs. Mura Moran was the wife of Earl Moran, who was a very famous photographer and artist who did a lot of pin-up sort of work. Now, and this is not a royal title of some baron, no. No, no, his, 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 name. his name was Earl. And Earl liked the girls. Right. So Mrs. Moran told the divorce court this week that she'd gone into her husband's studio and seen Chili Williams nude. Quote, Her husband was in shorts. There was no sign of easel or camera. Chili Williams wasn't taking this laying down, so to speak. She replied, I am suggesting you take back your ridiculous statement about me quickly, or I will, in a forceful manner, see that you eat your words. So this was public. This, this was, was public. public. This yeah. is in the newspaper. Mm. Mrs. Moran was not backing down either. She said, I take back nothing. I know women's underthings when I see them. Yours were strewn all over the studio. Mm. Guess who Earl next made famous? Who could it be? A big name? A very big name. In 1946, Earl, who'd been working in New York, moved to Hollywood. There he met a young starlet called Norma Jean Doherty. Mm. Footloose and fancy free Earl. Beautiful, happy to pose for him. She evolved into Marilyn Monroe. He took photos of her in various states of undress, including nude. And those were the nudes that were, in 1987, finally published in Playboys. So right. Earl Moran certainly had an eye for the starlets. He did pastels of her as well. Like, you know, he did illustrations that became magazine covers and magazine illustrations. Etchings. Etchings, indeed. Mm. One of them sold for 84 grand in really? 2011. So if you've got any of those in your sock drawer... Mm worth a fortune. Oh, good to see he did occasionally get the easel out. Well, in sporting news, I'd like to spare a thought for the passing of Gerald Halpin, who hailed from Newtown, Sydney, did a bit of work in Broken Hill as a miner, but made his name in cycling. This was the week he, he was farewelled and remembered because he was 47, so he was young. He was a big name back in the Olympics of... 1920 in Antwerp as a, as, a, as a sprinting, racing cyclist. But his claim to fame is his, I guess, heroism on the, on the track. And in an accident before training for the Olympics, he managed to break both his wrists. Ouch. But he turned up the morning after and he'd pretty much fashioned or had commissioned some stiff leather straps, which he then put on his wrists and then tied to the handlebars. They describe the leather straps like this. When fitted, they were strapped tightly around his wrists in order to prevent movement. Though the bands had the effect desired, they could not make the wrists immune from the jarring transmitted through the handlebars. Though he suffered intensely in the frequent practice rides, Halpin splendidly won the Australian half-mile championship and eventually went to the games with the Australian team and went through to the final stages. Didn't get a medal, but... Wow, that's pretty ballsy. But that's really dangerous as well. If you come off the bike, mm. you know you can't let go of the handlebars. Uh, true, yeah, that's true. But he's pretty fearless that way. Mm. What a tough nut. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Okay, this week, Sydney's The Sun had an article on the front page of its Sunday lift out, Ern Malley, the great poet or the greatest hoax. So Max Harris in his modernist magazine, Angry Penguins, had devoted 30 plus pages to his incredible discovery, Ern Malley, the mm. modernist poet extraordinaire who'd sadly passed away the year before, but at least his legacy remained. His sister had sent in these poems, you know, is it any, are they any good? And Max Harris had decided that this guy was an undiscovered genius. This very week, I am saying that Max Harris, who was only about 23 at the time, was probably reaching for the adult diapers. The Sun gave various reasons why, they were pretty sure it was a hoax. Mm. Uh, no insurance salesman named Ernest Malley has ever been employed in Victoria by National Mutual Life, which was part of his backstory. That he was a humble insurance salesman who just had the gift of the gab. Just happened to be a genius. No Malley had been you know, cremated at Rookwood Cemetery. So the floodgates opened and... Yeah, Max Harris was really left red-faced as the victim of what some people say is the greatest literary hoax ever. Yeah. Who was it and why was the big question? Was this answered at this point? Yeah, so there were two guys who uh, were working for the Army Directorate of Research and Civil Affairs. They were actual lovers of poetry, James McCauley and Harold Stewart, but they both thought that modernist poetry, especially that being promoted by Max Harris, who was very young and very successful and they were quite jealous of him. Mm, and a bit bohemian and left-wing and these guys, the hoaxers, were actually more conservative types. That's right, yeah. So they um, spent an afternoon just finding random phrases in books and just slapping them down, making it as silly as possible. Oh, to have been a fly on the wall oh, for that one. what a... You've got to... You really do have to doff your cap because it's, you know, it's pretty genius. And the, but the weird thing is, of course, is you know you read some of the poems and mm. they you know, they don't sound any different to a lot of similar style poems of, of the time. But I love that this reached the mainstream. What, Big time. What could possibly be the equivalent today? Because you know, it's a nice thought, but I can't imagine a hoax poet making the front pages. No, and then actually becoming part of the cultural landscape to the point where Malley's poetry is genuinely more known and more famous than most other actual poets from the time. Mm. The poems were published under the title The Darkening Ecliptic and they were supposed to be read as a body of work. And that's been republished like 20 times in various formats over the years. Not a bad afternoon's work. Well, also, I guess in the old you know, uh, literary teaching mode where it's all about the art, not the artist, you could argue... William S. Burroughs and all that with his cut-and-paste narratives that he used to put together stories just by clipping words and sticking them down. This is what these guys were doing, and whether you say that's art or not, well... There was a sequel to it which was even worse for Max Harris because the poems were alleged to contain obscenity, and we're talking obscenity in the world of 1944. Mm -hmm. So a couple of... This is Myrtle Bannister obscenity. This is Myrtle Mm -hmm. Bannister-level obscenity. So... Even the hint of, you know, reference to sexuality was perceived as obscene by a detective who made the complaint and then had to go into court and say why he thought these things were obscene. Mm. And it revealed this detective to be 
not a great lover of literature or actually possibly someone who'd ever read a poem before. Mm. One of the poems was called Egyptian Register. And I'll just read a few lines here. Oh, those dawn waders, cold sea gazers, the long-shanked ibises that on the Nile told one hushed peasant of rebirth, move in a calm, immortal freeze on the mausoleum of my incestuous and self-fructifying death. The, the words kind of sound good. My self-fructifying well, death. I'm not sure what that actually means. I was with you for a while there. Yeah, when we got to maybe self-fructifying. Mm. So the uh, detective who had to uh, go into court was uh, asked, you know, what was wrong with this poem? What was offensive about it? And he said, I don't know what incestuous means. I think there is a suggestion of indecency about it. Right. So he hadn't used a dictionary before he either. He hadn't used a dictionary. Mm. He was okay with self-fructifying, though. He was, and it turned out that Max Harris was pretty fructified because they were convicted. He was convicted of obscenity and fined. So, as the publisher, as the publisher, mm. yeah. So yeah, that was that was this week that Ern Malley was exposed as being no one, as being non-existent. Strangely, in other news about questionable art, representation and, in fact, incest, this week also (laughs) saw the release of the film The Man from Down Under, produced entirely in Hollywood, starring Charles Lawton, who is, while a fine actor, notably not Australian. But we can vouch for the fact that there are a couple of seconds of a fighting kangaroo. There are. Mm. We did watch this movie. What did you think of The Man from Down Under? Oh, I'm giving it thumbs up. Me too. Yeah, absolutely. Did you, what did you expect? Did you expect it was going to be... I expected something far more like the uh, Summer of the 17th Doll with Ernest Borgnine where every single outside shot you've got the Sydney Harbour Bridge in the background no matter which way the camera is facing. They didn't even have one shot of the Sydney Harbour Bridge in this film. They didn't bother. They, yeah, they didn't. They, I mean, they... That's how confident they were that they were capturing the essence. They didn't need the sort of cliches. The story is Charles Lawton is a guy named Jocko who... Jocko Wilson. Ex-boxer in 1919 after the war. He's in France and he... A stout fellow. He rescues a couple of orphan children, a brother and sister, who aren't actually brother and sister, though he doesn't know that and neither do they because they're so young. No, but we get that straight up. We do. Mm. They don't. Mm. So he takes these urchins, these refugees, back to Australia, raises them as his own. We cut to them, what, 20? odd years later yeah so the boy nipper is now a grown man and a boxer and the sister well the woman he thinks is his sister Mm. mary comes back from being away at school yeah she's blithely shipped off to school and he hasn't seen her for years and years and they are a very affectionate Mm. brother and sister Mm. who are kind of i guess in the background, is, is the one the weird thing about this film for me is the plot seems to change every ten minutes. Yeah, which was actually good. Yeah, I ke- like that. Kept a lot of interest. Sure. So Nipper wins a prize fight, which is supposedly set at Sydney Stadium, mm-hmm. which is actually stock footage of Madison Square Garden. But sure, but mm, the the fight, the, the staging of the fight of the boxing is pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. So he wins that, but ruins his shoulder. His old man Jocko with the winnings buys a hotel up in Queensland. Jocko's former girlfriend, who he stood up in the first reel, arrives to sort of make his life hell. Mm, she's the all-skin, all-dancing burlesque beauty who he leaves 
having promised to, to marry. marry. Yeah, played by Binnie Barnes. That's her character's name, Aggie Dorlands. Then the war starts. Jocko tries to enlist, but he's too old and too fat. It's quite poignant where he's too old. It and, is. And he's told by the doctor, Jocko, your heart's not up to it. You can't do this anymore. Yeah. And Jocko still tells his mates, that's what I'm going to... No, no, they're going to make me a high-ranking officer. And he, he, make, he spins a line to them just because he can't quite face the truth. And then he goes off and does war work, you know, digging ditches or mm. whatever. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, Mary's being romanced by her brother, not brother's best friend, but she turns him down even though the brother, not brother, thinks that she's actually making goo-goo eyes with this dude. Mm. So he punches him out. Mm. And she sort of says, you know, she, she rejects her suitor because she's got feelings for her brother, not brother. Which is just what goes on in Australia all the time. It's We're all familiar with these stories. Very sons and daughters. It is. It so is. Although it's usually the old reveal of, hang on, we can't be lovers because we. it turns out we are brother and sister. This, this turned it on its head, went the other way. It did. You know, it's not explicitly said, but he's all broken up because he's in love with a woman he believes is his sister, so he takes himself off to a monastery. He's confused. It's fair to say he's confused. He's pretty confused. Poor nipper. Then, of course, the Japanese stage a massive bombing raid over North Queensland. Mm. And, and crash their planes near the hotel. Yeah. And we get this great scene where three members of the, of the family are sort of converging on the house as it's under fire, under siege. The aerial bombing sequences are done pretty well. Oh, it was almost disturbing. The, the children that they're looking after in the hotel, because the hotel turns into this um, sort of nursery. And hospital. And hospital for little kitties. The kids looked out and out terrified. So, of course, there's a happy ending. The happiest part of the happy ending, Mm. could we call it a happy finish, is that it's revealed Mary suddenly can remember things from when she was an infant and her brother Nipper wasn't there. Mm. And Aggie, who's kind of now her stepmom, works it out that, oh, no, they're not brother and sister. Yep. And then we close on couple who have known each other for 20 plus years as brother and sister and all of their family mm. who've known them as brother and sister for 20 odd years rejoicing mm. that's good. now They've a couple s- yeah oh look at them that's good they've sorted that out yeah off the, their head the end mm. it didn't have a lot to do with australia but it had a feel it, yeah. had, a, it had a feel and the the accents charles lawton i thought he did really well i thought considering some of the modern day actors attempts there was one Australian actor in it, Clyde Cook, and he played Ginger, the kind of uh, comic sidekick. Who weirdly didn't sound that Australian. He didn't, did he? I didn't pick no. him as... The, I knew there was one Australian in it, but mm. I didn't know who and I didn't pick him. You know, that was a, a major role for him because he worked for decades in Hollywood. You look at his filmography and you see he's in Bulldog Drummond at Bay, 1947. Hotel Clark, uncredited. Rogue's March, 1953. Fisherman. Uncredited. Mm. Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, 1953. Drunk in pub. Uncredited. His final film was Donovan's Reef. Australian officer. Uncredited. (laughs) Well, it's good to be mentioning him now then. Yeah, good on you, Clyde Cook. This film was in development for two years and there were frequent reports about it. You know, Hollywood's finally making a movie about Australia. Mm. And then it was released in Australia this week in 1944, played in Sydney first. The reviews were less than kind. 
surprising, really. That, that does seem harsh. So the Sydney Morning Herald said, while it would be ungracious not to acknowledge Hollywood's intention to congratulate Australia, in The Man from Down Under, the compliment becomes hidden in a comedy of errors, errors in local colour, slang, accent, dress and character. The film is so badly off the scent in most respects that it is impossible not to be amused by it, provided that one can survive the irritations caused by its inaccuracies. So the critic is basically saying, I was laughing at this film, not, not with it, where it was meant to be comic, which is, it is, it is harsh. Yeah, the, I think so. I thought the slang, there was plenty of uses of Bonza Mate and Cobra and all that, but uh, it wasn't overused. Yeah, well, at the time, they kind of thought that it was. So Sydney's The Daily Telegraph actually sought out uh, Australian soldiers to give their opinions on the film, and they were very unkind. Private Vic Thompson of Melbourne, who was a Middle East veteran, said, Do the people in Hollywood think we are all ignorant? Apparently they have the idea we can't speak without saying, Strike me, bloom and pink, or something similar. <laughs> Sergeant Fred Wemby of Talong said, When did the Japs invade Queensland? Private Arthur Pye of Newtown said, There was no sign of the true Australian atmosphere in the film. I guess they're kind of valid comments and you'd probably be a bit incensed at the time. I guess so. I guess so. But I'd still rather watch that than Baz Luhrmann's Australia. There was something that caught my eye with the, uh, the, the names involved with this uh, film and that would be the producer by the name of Orville O'Dull. Orville O'Dull. O-O-D. O-O-D. He directed too. He actually, so you can actually go and see. He didn't direct this one though. No, he didn't direct this no. one, but you could. You could go and see a dull movie. Orville O'Dull's early career, he was credited as O-O-Dull. O-O-Dull. Which Somehow is possibly worse. worse. <laughs> <laughs> but he won an Oscar. No way. Orville O'Dull won an Oscar. He won the Oscar for Best Documentary Feature in 1948. That was the best dull documentary I've ever seen. So his documentary was called The Secret Land, and what it comprised of was footage filmed by military photographers of Antarctica during Operation High Jump, which was the American military's attempt to evaluate Antarctica's military potential after World War II. Wow. Wow. I, I'm guessing they decided no, a bit cold. Well, funnily enough, one of the admirals in the film and a part of Operation High Jump was a guy called Richard E. Bird, and he figures quite prominently in conspiracy theories about the hollow earth and all of that kind of thing. Right, right. So they somehow dig into this frozen... I think, some of the, I think the theory is that there's actually a hole... In oh, the Antarctic, and it leads into the underground world. Of course, of course. Oh, there you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Where the villain sits. Okay, so I'm not going to vouch for the veracity of this, but Admiral Richard E. Bird supposedly wrote about encountering a lost race of people from the hollow earth while he was on this mission. Jeez, they have to be pretty damn lost. Mm-hmm. I've pulled up his supposed diary on a website, and I might just read a little bit. I bid you welcome to our domain, Admiral. I see a man with delicate features and the etching of years upon his face. He is seated at a long table. He motions me to sit down in one of the chairs. After I am seated, he places his fingertips together and smiles. He speaks softly again and conveys the following. We have let you enter here because you are of noble character and well known on the surface world, Admiral. 
So he's deep underground. He's deep underground in Antarctica. Right. Surface world, a half gasp under my breath. Yes, the master replies with a smile. You are in the domain of the Ariani, the inner world of the earth. We talk about going down rabbit holes. I was going to say, I like that we've gone from the man down under to the work of Orville O'Dull going to Antarctica to do his documentary and then headed down an actual hole. That's one hell of a rabbit hole. Uh, And also the various Antarctic explorers. How would this... They missed it. Admiral Dickie Bird Admiral Richard E. Bird is in fact Admiral Dickie Bird. You're right. Mm, Yeah. How would he explain the fact that none of these expeditions ever encountered the lost tribes? Or would he say they did? There was Shackleton trudging through the snow. Oh, look at that. There's an entire civilization over there. I'll I'll just keep that quiet. Mm -hmm. Mm. These are the rantings of an... Of a US admiral. Yes. Allegedly, or these are verified? I am not sure. Let me just see. I wonder what Orville o- O'Dull. Well, he clearly didn't put it into his no, award winning documentary. Not, and clearly that's, told not to. That's why he got the Oscar, because mm-hmm. he towed the line. Well done, Orville. We yep. knew we could count on your dull work. The secret lost diary of Admiral Richard E. Bird and the Phantom of the Poles is available. On Amazon. It has 22 customer reviews and an average rating of four stars. One of the reviews, one star, save your money. You can print this right off the internet. Second, it's impossible to be at the North Pole and South Pole at the same time. Not if there's a hole running straight through the middle. What are they thinking? What are they saying? Elon Musk, he could actually make, if it's not true, he could make it happen. He could bore a hole right through the earth. Hang on. We've got the dull and we've got the boring. There it is. It's all coming together. I guess we're out of time, but join us next week when we go way back to 1929. Until then, remember, as C.S. Lewis said, history isn't just the story of bad people doing bad things. It's quite as much a story of people trying to do good things, but somehow something goes wrong. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.